Good morning. Great to see you. And um, I don't know what kind of start to the, the new year you've had, but um, I think in terms of the church, it's been, a, it's been a great start to the year. I've really been enjoying everything that's been going on. Um, so I'm thinking back to our week of prayer that we had a couple of weeks ago. Wow, what a powerful time. Powerful week. Thank you to all of those who prayed at home or came out to the meetings. Just great to be together and, and seek the Lord together. And then just loads of other stuff going on. So we've had our small group celebration, hearing great things about small groups and sign-ups for small groups. And uh, we had our Azalea Sunday, the interview with Ruth Robb, really powerful. And then, of course, last week we had our 10 talks. What a fantastic morning that was. I got to hear all nine of them at all three meetings. God was just speaking through all those talks. Absolutely brilliant. Um, great start to the year. But, of course, the flip side of all those good things that are going on is that life can feel like it's moving along at quite a pace. It can feel a bit frenetic. It can feel kind of relentless. I'm sure you can identify. So just do something with me for a minute. Just take a, take a deep breath in. And then breathe out. Already that feels better, doesn't it? Breathe in again. And then breathe out. And then keep breathing out. And keep breathing out. Don't do this if you have respiratory problems. Keep breathing out. Don't breathe in. Keep breathing out. And breathe out. Okay. Life can sometimes feel a bit like that. You can breathe normally now. I see somebody going blue. Um, life can feel a bit like that at times. Or maybe all the time. Just breathing out. Breathless. Weary. Exhausting. Disorientating. You know, you've got to go to work, you've got to go to school, it's breathing out. You've got to do stuff with the kids, breathing out, make dinner, breathing out, keep the house clean, tidy, breathing out. You've got to catch up with a friend over coffee, breathing out. There's some emotional conversation you've got to have, breathing out. You've got to catch up on the work you didn't manage to get done in the day, but you've got a deadline to meet, so you're, you're breathing out. You've got to catch up on the latest hilarious posts on Facebook or Instagram. And then you've got to post something about yourself that makes your life look just extraordinary and wonderful and fantastic, and you're breathing out, and then the result of that is that on top of that, coming to church can feel like breathing out, and coming and serving in the church can feel like you're breathing out, and you're breathing out, and you're breathing out. Maybe something is wrong if that's how life feels, because it is a basic fact of life that you have to breathe in in order to be able to breathe out. You have to breathe in to breathe out. It's a fundamental rhythm of life that keeps us all alive. Or when a mother gives birth to a baby, you know, the, the, the thing you're listening out for is the baby's cry, the sign of life, the sign that all is well. But to be able to cry, the baby first has to breathe in, take its first breath in. You've got to breathe in to breathe out. And with all the activity in life and the pace of life, the breathing in part, rest often gets missed. And that's actually essential. It should be a non-negotiable in our life to have a rhythm of rest in your life. Appreciating, of course, that we go through seasons of life where that's more difficult to achieve than in others. But it started to really bug me about a year ago, year and a half ago, that my response to the question, how are you, how are you doing, how is work, that my response to that question was no different from the rest of the world. I'm just, I'm tired. I'm busy, I'm so busy, I've just got so much on, it's quite stressful. And 
And really, I was communicating a sense of burden and a sense of weariness. And I thought, this isn't right. It should be different in the church. It should be different for those who follow Christ. Not that I shouldn't be busy. Not that I shouldn't have lots on and lots to do. That's fine. But that actually I should be thriving in that and not being wearied and burdened by it and stressed by it. And of course, I was conscious that I was going to be taking on the leadership of the church. Responsibility increasing. The spiritual battle intensifying. And so it needs a different approach. And I need to take rest and replenishment in all its forms much, much more seriously. And by the way, I really haven't cracked this yet. But I think, my wife might disagree, but I think that I'm in much better shape now, even with the increased responsibility, than I was a couple of years ago. Now that's not to say that I've got it all all down. But some of what I say today comes out of that journey of discovering some of these things. And of course, there are other things that I'll say today that I'm still very much learning as I go along. But we've been doing a lot of work recently as a staff team in the church about working, the value of working from a place of rest. Work from a place of rest as opposed to working until you collapse because you need a rest. Very different things. Work from a place of rest. And of course, there are loads of basic practical things we've talked about in terms of sleep, how much sleep you're getting, what you're eating, your physical health, your time management, um, all those kind of things. We've been looking at our various batteries. Are they full? Are they empty? How do we recharge? There are loads of practical things you can do, but actually I think there's a lot more to it than that. I think there's something a lot deeper than that. But I think it's possible to be busy without being weary. I think it's possible to be busy and to be, at the same time, even in the busyness, to be genuinely rested. Obviously, there are limits And we have different capacities. Each of us has different capacities for how much we can do. And sometimes the issue really might be that you are just cramming way too much into your life. Some of it enforced, some of it you don't have a choice about. And then some of it not enforced. So there might just be some things that you need to stop doing and have a look at your life. What are the things in your life that actually don't bear fruit? They're just a waste of time, a waste of energy. They take away energy from you. So it might be that the issue for you is not simply being busy. It might be that it's being busy with the wrong things or with the wrong motivations. So here's what Jesus says, one of many things Jesus says about this. Very familiar passage in Matthew 11 uh, from verse 28. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's a wonderful line, isn't it? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's a lot in here, but first thing I notice here is that Jesus does acknowledge that we do get weary. You know, there's no pretense here, come to me you who are weary and burdened. He knows we get weary, but he's not talking about physical weariness here. You know, we can get physically weary if we've had a bad night's sleep or if we're ill or lots of reasons we can feel physically weary. But Jesus is not talking about physical weariness because he contrasts it with finding rest for your soul. He's talking about a soul weariness that we can have, a, a spiritual weariness, a spiritual restlessness that we have, and a burden. So in the New Testament context, the words burden and yoke would have had immediate connotations with the law. 
the Old Testament law. The Pharisees would speak about people being called to carry the yoke of the Torah, the, 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 the heavy burden of the Old Testament Jewish law with all its various commandments. In Matthew 23, Jesus talks about the teachers of the law placing heavy burdens on people's shoulders, the heavy burden of the law, something that, try as you might, you will never live up to, you will never attain, you will never achieve. And while we are no longer under the burden of the law in the same way, because we are this side of the cross, I think that restlessness still exists in all of us that brings weariness because we still feel that we need to prove ourselves in various ways. Because deep down, I think every human being knows that we were made for a different kind of world and for a different kind of life. We were made in the beginning for perfection but we're all very well aware that we're not perfect. We're far from perfect because of sin. So there is a turmoil in us. There is a restlessness that goes on in each of us because we're reaching for something that we actually can't reach. We're reaching for the perfect. We're, we're, we're reaching for something that is never satisfied. And that manifests itself in different ways in different people. It's kind of obvious in perfectionists and workaholics. That's an obvious outworking, but actually it's there under the surface in all of us. Because we are finite creatures who wrestle with infinite desires that we cannot satisfy ourselves. That's why Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. Come to Jesus. Come to the infinite one, the eternal one, where you can truly find deep rest, satisfaction for your soul. The early church father, Augustine, he said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. That we have to take our deepest desires and submit them to God. You know, put them below God. Submit them. Find your primary desire in God himself. Dallas Willard puts it like this. He says, desire is infinite partly because we were made by God, made for God, made to need God, and made to run on God. We can only be satisfied by the one who is infinite, eternal, and able to supply all our needs. We are only at home in God. When we fall away from God, when we take our eyes off him, we turn away from him, the desire for the infinite remains, but it is displaced upon things that will certainly lead to destruction. And I think we all recognize that. We all recognize the tendency that is within all of us to look for satisfaction or comfort or fulfillment in all the wrong places. In all the things that don't actually ultimately satisfy, you know, the human disposition post-Eden is not atheism. It is idolatry. It's idolatry. We look to things. Might be having the latest thing, having the best phone, the best car, the best clothes. Our economy in the West is built on people spending money on things that they don't actually need. It's what fuels marketing and advertising. You know, marketing and advertising is built on getting at that innate restlessness of the human heart, the reality that that's how we all live, and, and, and creating a sense of dissatisfaction and discontentment with what you have because it's great if you could have this. That's when you'll be happy. That's what fuels the, the whole thing of marketing and advertising. Or it might be experiences. You've got to have this kind of experience. You've got to go on this kind of holiday. Or you've got to do this kind of leisure activity. And in our day, we have more opportunities than ever before in front of us to do all sorts of things, to have all sorts of experiences. 
And then we have social media to stoke up our envy and desperately desire to have a life like that person or what we perceive their life to be like, to have the things they have, to have the experiences they have, to have the lifestyle that they have. But does any of it actually bring satisfaction? Does any of it bring lasting satisfaction? Maybe sometimes you know, it brings some fleeting satisfaction, but it never lasts because you're always on to the next thing, looking to the next thing. You know, you have this great holiday that you've paid thousands for, and I love holidays, but you've, you've paid such a lot for this holiday, you've been looking forward to it for months, it's been the light on your horizon, and you're kind of on your knees, crawling over the line to get onto this holiday that's going to be life-changing and life-shaping, and then before you know it, it's over. And you're looking for the next thing, the next buzz, the next excitement. It's like chasing after the wind. And it leads to a frazzled life. It leads to a busy life of always seeking more, always wanting more, needing more, wanting a different life. And the irony is that the more that we have and the more opportunities we have, the more restless we become and the more dissatisfied we become. Now the implication of Jesus saying here, take my yoke upon you. Take my yoke upon you. The implication is that you're already yoked to something. You're already wearing a yoke and you need a new one. What is a yoke? Let's just be clear here. Here's a picture of a yoke. We've got the picture? Great. So a yoke is this heavy wooden beam that was used by farmers to join a pair of oxen together so that they could pull a plow or pull a cart together. The implication of what Jesus is saying is you're already wearing a yoke. You're already, you already have that burden on your neck. You are yoked to something else. You're joined to something else that you are relying on to do the work of pulling the cart of your life. What is the thing that you really live for? What is the thing that you have yoked yourself to in order to try and deal with your restlessness, in order to try and satisfy your desires? So it might be that you are yoked to having the best stuff. Materialism, that's what you're yoked to. That's what you're looking to. It might be that you're yoked to having the best experiences. That's what you really live for. Experience after experience after experience. That's what you're relying on to find meaning in life, to satisfy your desires. But ultimately, it just disappoints and it actually crushes you and destroys you because no earthly experience can possibly do that. Nothing on this earth can possibly satisfy an eternal and infinite desire. Maybe you're yoked to your family, living life through your family or through your kids or this ideal vision of having the perfect family. Let me tell you, that's never going to (laughs) happen. Thanks, Ron. (laughs) Maybe you're yoked to approval, people's approval. The irony again is that Being yoked to it will destroy what you're looking for. With approval, you're looking for good relationships. You're looking for loving, close relationships. You won't. You'll have weak relationships. Because if you're desperate for people's approval, you won't be able to give criticism and you won't be able to take criticism. And strong relationships depend on being able to give and take criticism. So it will destroy the very thing that you're trying to achieve. If you're yoked to it, maybe you're yoked to success. A lot of us get yoked to success. So when I was the youth pastor here a few years ago, I came into the youth work, had this vision of what I wanted it to look like, and part of that vision was Friday nights. I wanted an event that ran on Friday nights that drew lots of young people from outside the church. 
And, and that started to happen. The numbers grew, and then they continued to grow. The church young people were bringing friends. Their friends were bringing friends. So I experienced a measure of success. And, and that was important to me, I realized. I wanted to be successful, and that's not a bad thing in itself. I wanted success. I liked feeling successful. But then what happened next is that a couple of youth leaders from other churches came, and they wanted to sort of see what we were doing. And so this success actually gave me a sense of authority. I know what I'm doing. In fact, I can teach other people about this. I have authority here. And then what happened is that brought me a great sense of security. I'm good at this. I can do this. I'm doing well. Things are good. And all of that fed into my identity. I was finding my identity in what I did. In being a successful youth pastor with the admiration of Others. Now, of course, that's all very well while the numbers are still growing. What happens, though, when one evening half the number turn up for whatever reason? It's not just disappointing, it crushes you. It's devastating. It starts to destroy you because your identity takes a hit. The thing you're building your identity on takes a hit. Now, I wonder, what would you put there in the place of success? Maybe for you, success is the thing. You, you resonate with this. In your context, you think, yeah, I can see that. But maybe it's popularity. Certainly when I was younger, that would have been my thing. Popularity leading you know, to, to needing this sense of authority among a group of friends and security in your friendship group. Inevitably, by the way, if, if popularity is king, if popularity is the number one thing, it will lead you to compromise. Because at some point, you will have to compromise in order to retain your place of being this kind of person that people admire. Maybe it's being the funny one, and so you've got to take the joke a little bit further than everybody else. You'll end, up, you'll end up compromising in some area. But you find your security, you find your identity in popularity. Maybe it's wealth and financial success. That's where you find security. Maybe it's um, your spouse or trying to find the perfect spouse. <laughs> Again, it's not going to happen. Whatever you're yoked to, Whatever it is that you really live for, it will end up destroying you. It'll end up crushing you. It's like being yoked to a horse that's much bigger and much stronger and much faster than you are. It will kill you because you can't possibly keep up with it and its demands. You've yoked yourself to an animal that you can't possibly control. Now, contrast this with the example of Jesus. Jesus, utterly secure in his identity, uh, secure in his mission and his, his purpose. So think about when Jesus was baptized. Just thank you. When Jesus was baptized, what did he have? He had the Holy Spirit resting on him like a dove. And God the Father speaking from heaven in an audible voice. Everyone can hear, this is my son. I love him. I'm so pleased with him. Talk about being clear in your identity. And that gave him the security to go into the wilderness for 40 days without food. And it gave him authority over the devil to overcome the temptations that he tried to tempt him with. And ultimately it gave him success in his mission and in his ministry. It starts with identity. Who are you? We have it the wrong way around. Any time that we start with anything other than our identity in Christ, it's the wrong way around. People often talk about boosting your self-esteem. You need to boost your self-esteem. I'm not quite sure that's right. I think you need to boost your Christ-esteem. Know what he says about you. Know how he sees you because your identity is based on what he says about you, not on what you say about yourself. If you focus on your Christ esteem and knowing that, you'll find suddenly your self-esteem shoots up because we trust him and we believe him. 
When we yoke to anything other than him, other than Jesus, it destroys us. It exhausts us. It makes us weary. And do you know something? Jesus is not glorified by unhappy, exhausted, weary people who also say they're followers of him. That doesn't glorify Jesus. We are called to be different. We're called to shine with the light of Christ, to be different from the rest of the world. So if you are weary and if you're burdened, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. Come to me. Take that yoke off and take my yoke upon you instead. So how do we do that? How do we come to Jesus? How do we find our identity in him? How do we find rest in him? Well, I don't think it's any coincidence that in the very next line, at the start of chapter 12, Jesus, the, the, the subject is the Sabbath. Jesus starts talking about the Sabbath. He tells a couple of stories, answers questions about the Sabbath. And of course, we would primarily understand the Sabbath as a day, a day of rest. And it's, more, it's actually more than that, which I'll come on to in a minute. But let's start there with this idea of a day of rest. Maybe you think of it as primarily a Jewish thing that you know, we don't really have to do anymore because it was for the Jews. It was for them. It was part of the law, the old law, you know, and... You know, from sundown on a Friday through to Saturday evening, every week. Our traditional equivalent would be Sundays, with worship of God built in as part of that, that day. And I guess many of us can remember a time when Sunday really did feel like that. Because nothing was open, and you, there was nothing to do. As a child, I found it rather boring. But actually, I'd really value it now. Sunday did used to feel like that. But the word Sabbath comes from the Hebrew Shabbat, which means to stop. To stop a day, a whole day, to stop. To stop working, to stop wanting and envying, to stop worrying. A day to turn off your phone, to to turn off your notifications, to not check your work emails. A day to direct your focus to God, to delight in him. A day to enjoy some space in your life. A day to enjoy relationships, a day to enjoy food, a day to stop, to stop, or as the psalmist says, to be still and know that I am God. Most of us don't rest until we absolutely have to. It's a bit like when your phone gets to 5% and it's red and it's bleeping at you, and so we plug the phone in for a quick boost before it dies. I think most of us approach rest in that way. We just grab a bit of rest, when otherwise, we'd, otherwise we'll die because we're exhausted. I think most of us also confuse rest with distraction and entertainment. Now, distraction and entertainment has its place. I benefited from that yesterday going to the cinema. Yesterday? No, it's Friday. It has its place sometimes to to help you to switch off, to turn your mind to other things, but it's not the complete picture or even close to the complete picture of rest. I don't think we're very good at this. I don't think we're very good at Sabbath. We're not very good at stopping But it should be a non-negotiable for us because, of course, Sabbath is a rhythm that has been woven into creation by God himself. He rested on the seventh day. He didn't need to rest. God doesn't get weary. But he set an example for us and set this pattern that's woven into creation that we are designed to function at our best in that rhythm of Sabbath rest. So for me, it's Friday. That's That's my day off today. Sunday is not a Sabbath for me. But Friday's my day off, and I am learning, I am learning to get much better at guarding that day off and to treasure it and to plan it, actually, to plan restful activities, things that I can do that I know will help me to rest and, and replenish. I haven't always been very good at this. 
at guarding my day off. But I know that when I've had a good day off, when I've had a good Sabbath, I do feel renewed. I do feel replenished. I've had a chance to stop. And why wouldn't it? Because it's how God designed things. So why wouldn't that work? The ironic thing, of course, is that this week, as I've been preparing to speak on this subject of rest, um, well, it's, it has been a busy couple of weeks, and so my time to give to this, to allocate to this, to prepare, was somewhat limited. And the thought crossed my mind, the temptation crossed my mind, just work on it on Friday. And I had to rebuke myself very quickly as a hypocrite. No, no, it's very important to get that time to get that day off, because ultimately rest is a form of faith. It is putting your trust in God, in his provision, in his care. It's recognizing that actually, do you know what? The world keeps turning when I stop, because I'm not in control. I'm not sovereign, only God is sovereign. He's in control, he's in charge. The world keeps turning. You know, the reason some of us find it difficult to stop is not necessarily because we have too much to do. It's a lack of trust it's a sense of anxiety, a lack of faith in God, or maybe even it's to do with our own ego, the arrogance of thinking, everything depends on me. If I don't get this done, it's disastrous, vastly overestimating our own performance. You know, I, I can't take a day off, it'll all fall apart. Forgetting, of course, the irony of that is that you spend a third of your life asleep. We are weak. When you're asleep, you're powerless. And if you've ever tried to not sleep, and you, you actually can't do it. You, you, you will fall asleep in the end. And when you're, you're powerless, you're utterly at God's mercy to keep you alive. The arrogance of thinking that we can't rest because, well, you have to rest. You don't get a choice. But when we don't stop, we ignore the wisdom of God and we become weary and burdened and stressed. And we live in a world, we live in modern society that is not conducive to rest. It's a 24-7 world that we live in. So Sabbath is not just going to happen to you. It's not going to come to you. You have to go looking for it and grab it for yourself. Plan, be intentional to make sure you take a day to stop, a day to rest, to slow down, to delight, a day to be able to delight in God and what you have, to take Jesus' yoke upon you and know that he is the saviour and you are not. He's in control, you are not, knowing you can rest in his salvation because he has lived the perfect life on your behalf so you have no need to prove yourself to anyone and he's died the death that you should have died, so you have no need to punish yourself. So take time to stop and delight in him, delight in what he's given you. Now, as I said before, Sabbath is actually much more than just a day. It's certainly not less, but it is much more. It, it is, ultimately, it's an attitude of heart, a Sabbath heart. Having a Sabbath heart, it's a way of being. It's having a spirit of restfulness through all of life. It's having a spirit of restfulness that comes as a result of living in God's presence through the whole week, not just one day a week. Of being aware of God's goodness and love and peace and presence at all times and in all circumstances. So uh, I got this, um, these two lists, this table from a church leader called John Mark Comer that compares a life of restfulness with a life of restlessness. So just have a look at these together. Life of restfulness, you find you have margin Margin, meaning you actually do have time in your life to stop. You have time to be present to the moment rather than a life of constant, relentless busyness. No time to stop, driven by the tyranny of the urgent. A restful life, actually you experience at times in your life slowness rather than constant hurry or quiet rather than constant noise. Deep relationships with family, friends, community rather than isolation. 
the restful life, you'll find actually you come to enjoy more and more time alone. Time alone with God. Whatever your personality type, whether you're introvert or extrovert, actually you start to enjoy that rather than always having to be in crowds. It's a life of delight. You delight in things rather than distraction. You know, being on your phone and missing something that your kids are doing or missing a friend or missing something beautiful in life because you're distracted rather than delighting. A life of enjoyment rather than envy. Envy is the thief of enjoyment. It steals enjoyment from you. A life of clarity, knowing who you are, your identity, knowing what you're called to do, what you're made to do, and being comfortable with that rather than a life of confusion and disorientation. A life of gratitude rather than greed. A life of contentment. Contentment with life in all circumstances rather than discontentment, always needing or wanting more or wanting a different life. It's a life of trust, trusting in God rather than anxiety. A life of working from a place of love and approval with your identity based on who you are loved by, not by what you do, which is working for love and approval. And it's seeing work as contribution. Whatever your work is, whether it's paid or unpaid, that you see it as just, I'm just playing my part in God's big story and I'm happy to play whatever part he wants me to play rather than seeing work as accumulation and accomplishment. A restful life and a restless life. A Sabbath life and a weary life. I wonder which list resonates more with you. Now I guess for the majority, it's the restless one. And rest for you is kind of something you fantasize about. If I could just have that kind of holiday, if I could just have that kind of experience. And you might even achieve those things. But like I said earlier, you then go back to normal life. And all the stress of normal life, the experience is gone, the holiday is gone. I think that we are truly restful. I think we, it's a sign of having a Sabbath heart when we find that ordinary life is enough. When you're not always reaching and grasping and wanting more. And when you're aware of and grateful for the goodness and faithfulness of God in your actual life today rather than an idealized life of tomorrow. As the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4, he says, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, and I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And you know what? Rest contentment is a great weapon against the enemy. It's far more difficult to tempt somebody who is contented and rested. It's really easy to tempt people who are stressed, weary, unhappy, always wanting more, always wanting a different kind of life. You are a target for temptation. Rest is a great weapon against the enemy. The Sabbath is not only a command of God, and it is a command, but it is also an invitation from God to flourish, an invitation to thrive, and it is an invitation. Unlike the oxen who have no choice but to have this yoke, this heavy wooden beam, bearing that burden, pulling that cart, they have no choice in it. But Jesus gives you a choice. He gives us all a choice to be released from the heavy burden of that yoke and to take his burden, which is light. It's an invitation to lay your burden down, to be yoked only to him, to detach yourself from what you have been yoked to and take Jesus' yoke upon you. 
yoked to him. His is the only yoke that is light. He is the only one who, if you get into harness with him, will not relentlessly and unforgivingly drive you into the ground. Why? Because he's gentle and he's humble in heart. He doesn't make unreasonable demands on your life. He doesn't, he doesn't drive you. He guides you. He leads you. He doesn't stand over you like a policeman or an angry school teacher. He died for you. He loves you. He wants the best for you and he knows what is best for you. And he just holds out his hand and says, come with me. Just come, walk with me. The final thing I want to say here, and this is really teeing up the rest of the series, is you can't do verse 28 without verse 29. So verse 28 talks about coming to Jesus and finding rest. And I guess we all want a bit of that. Yeah, that sounds great. Give me that, Jesus. But it happens through following what verse 29 says, which is take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from him. It's discipleship that he's talking about. Actively following Jesus is essential. Every day, every hour, looking to him, listening to him, learning from him, letting him teach you, following his lead, bringing everything into line with him. Rhythms of rest in our life, absolutely essential. But then other rhythms of discipleship are also essential in developing a Sabbath heart. Otherwise, you're just a consumer. You're just coming on a Sunday to get your bit of Jesus for the week, but then you're going and putting your old yoke back on for the rest of the week and wondering why the Christian life isn't working for you. No, no, the life of following Christ is all in. It's all in, no holding back. It's a lifelong, day-by-day discipleship. Deny yourself, he says. Deny yourself, pick up your cross. Follow him. And so for the rest of this series, we're going to be focusing in on the rhythms of discipleship that we teach on chapter one. The rhythms of scripture and prayer and generosity, power, freedom, worship, and reaching out. And we'll be finishing by looking at how we do all that in community and the importance of doing all of that in community. But let me just say this, and please hear this. These rhythms are not about putting yet more items on your to-do list and making you feel more burdened. You know, oh, God, you've got to read the Bible. I mean, I haven't got time for that. Oh, I've got to pray. How do I, where do I slot that in into my busy life, into my busy schedule? No, no. This is not about increasing your burden because these rhythms are part of following Jesus. And he says, my burden is light. So if it feels like that to you, if any of these rhythms feel like a heavy burden, it may be that they need to displace other things in your life, displace other activities in your life, activities that don't bear fruit. You know, maybe instead of checking Facebook every five or ten minutes, pray every five or ten minutes. Because you will find life and you will find rest in these rhythms if we get this right. You will find both breathing in and breathing out in these rhythms. You walk alongside and at the same pace as Jesus in these rhythms. So Eugene Peterson, who, who wrote the message translation of the Bible, he translates verse 29 in this way. Jesus says, walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. That's what they are. When we get it right, these are unforced rhythms of grace. One person commented in our Bible in One Year group that many of us are involved with Bible in a year. She said this. She said, I'm really thankful to be reading the Bible regularly and consistently again, and it had been ages since I had. And then she said this. It's like sunlight and rain 
on tired, dry soil. A beautiful way of putting it. It's a beautiful picture. Sunlight and rain on tired, dry soil. It's what following Jesus is like. It's what these rhythms encourage. As a church, we are called to be different. We are called to be different from the rest of the world. We're called to be the light of the world, to shine with the light of, the Christ, of Christ. And it is good news. The gospel is good news. We should show it in our lives. What would it look like if we really were genuinely a true community of rest and of gratitude, of peace, of joy, of prayer, of loving one another? What a gift that would be to our town. What a gift that would be to this community of Hazelmere. What a gift it would be to those on our blessed list. What an opportunity we have to show those around us the beauty of following Jesus. The freedom he brings, the life he brings, the truth he brings, the joy he brings, the love he brings, the beauty of a life dedicated to following Jesus. What an opportunity we have to show that there is an alternative to the empty promises of the world. There is an alternative to the busyness and hurry and constant striving of the world. What an opportunity we have to love people through how we live our lives and to surround and saturate this town with the love of Jesus. So let me just finish on these questions to consider. Is your life restful or is it restless? Are you restful or restless? Have you come to Christ? Have you ever come to Christ? Are you learning from him? Are you following him every day? What are you yoked to? What is it that you truly live for? Jesus offers rest for your soul. And let's grab it. Grab it with both hands. And be people who live a life of rest, a life of fruitfulness, and a life that shows a dark, dying world what the light of Christ is really like. Amen?